Welcome to the Global Market Outlook 2023 brought to you by RBC Capital Markets. In this audio cast, you'll hear insights from Nitin Babar and John Coles, global co-heads of Equity Capital Markets, along with Duncan Smith, co-head of European ECM and Corporate Broking, and Justin Grimman, Managing Director and Head of Equity Capital Markets Australia, as they talk about their outlook for the year ahead. Duncan, tell us about your thoughts on the markets this year. Yeah, well, it's certainly been quite tricky, I think, for everybody around the globe, no doubt. It's certainly going to be a, quite a big down year for equity markets, both in Europe and in North America and elsewhere. Um, and obviously, that's had quite a big knock-on impact on ECM activity. Um, certainly, I don't know where we are in your markets, but in Europe, we are probably at a three-decade low in terms of overall issuance in terms of ECM volumes. And the ECM volume that there has been has been dominated by one or two very large transactions. I mean, if you take those out, really, it has been a very light year. And it comes off the back of an incredible 21 which I think for all of us was probably a record constructive year. If you go back actually to 2009, that was the record year ever for European ECM issuance. But again, it was sort of on the back of the GFC and it was about balance sheet repair. So in terms of constructive uh, ECM markets, 21, the best year I think we've all ever had, probably in all markets, um, and incredibly busy. But, and 22 is sort of the opposite of that. Justin, tell us about the year that you've had uh, and the experiences that you've seen in APAC. Like most markets, ECM issuance in Australia this year has been a lot softer than what we saw over the past two years. Total issuance is expected to come in around half of 2021 levels, with IPO activity in the Australian market essentially non-existent after a record year in 2021. Similar to what Duncan described in Europe, we've also seen a number of very large transformational M&A financings dominate total issuance here in Australia. In fact, Australian listed companies have executed three of the 10 largest ECM transactions to fund M&A globally this year, and two of these have involved cross-border acquisitions. In addition to these large M&A financings, one of the trends that we've really seen come through has been capital being used to fund companies with exposure to the broader electrification megatrend with half of the mining issuance in 2022 going to companies with exposure to EV inputs. I think it's fair to say that this has been an exciting source of growth in a very challenging year here in Australia. We definitely expect to see more of this in 2023. Well, what's interesting when we've talked about this, 21 and 22 were both such anomaly years in for different ways. 21, the year of the SPAC, some 600 SPACs raising uh, inordinate amount of volume that just had no part in 22 volumes. In 22, Um, we could go around the table and rattle off whether it was geopolitical, whether it was economic, whether it was the end of the pandemic, and all of the things that conspired against the market certainly played out. Uh, I'm optimistic, on the other hand, because the number of things that could have driven the market overall into a complete tailspin, all of which, in one way or another, we have started to show signs of recovery from. Certainly, it's been a down market. Certainly, the numbers in in every way have had volumes and number of deals been dramatically down. But I, um, and maybe we have the benefit of sitting here in late November and watching the last couple of weeks where we've had a real rally, we've had some real economic news that's impacted the markets in a good way. I'm optimistic for 2023 um, with the return of the IPO calendar, with the return of the follow-on calendar, and with return um, in some ways of a new playbook that we haven't seen before to get transactions done. Yeah, I think that's right. I think we've had a year where everybody's been focused on the macro. 
Everybody knows all the CPI numbers, when the Fed's meeting, what the expectations are. Remember when we didn't have to parse every word in the we didn't Fed have statement? To, yeah, right? yeah, but, but nowadays, everybody's an expert on it, uh, corporates alike, uh, with investors. Um, but it's been a, a year where macro has dominated, and it's been very difficult for investors to sit, get footing in any market in terms of buying new issues, thinking about where they support their names, thinking about where they support new names. Uh, and in a rising rate environment, a lot of the traditional products that come to the fore, things like convertibles, which we'll talk about, um, uh, really didn't set foot either. So it's, it is really good to see us settling in a bit towards the end of the year. Um, but that macro focus has been something that has dogged us for the entirety of the last uh, nine months or so. But you're absolutely right. It's been all about the macro, and I'm going to use a word that we haven't used in our parlance for a long time. Maybe we get back to stock picking at some point, and that would be a fantastic I, I, I place to be. I think that's a really important point, because last year we had... IPO after IPO, the multiple of revenue, multiple of earnings down the road, cash flow down the road. It was frankly silliness. It was hard for investors who were trained in the fundamentals to really enjoy stock picking and being able to be confident in the selection. And I think part of the downdraft here is people bought things they thought would continue to go up in value but not on the basis of fundamental values. And so this reset that we've had this year, I think, is a very healthy one. And in particular, in our market, in, in, in the Canadian marketplace, we've seen a more balanced discussion as to what the parts of the economy have been. Uh, energy has become quite a bit more influential in the overall activity. We've been doing buybacks, not issuance for these companies, because huge cash flows in, in the S&P 500 in, in in 2021, energy was 1.9%. It is now approaching 5%. In Canada, it was 12%, now approaching 20%. Uh, so that balance that we've seen that relates to ESG transition, energy security has come back to the fore, which I think makes a lot of sense to most investors and most issuers. Justin, what's your take on that? Starting with the macro point, rates and inflation completely dominated the investment decision in 2022 here in Australia. Basically, I think we all know it's very hard for investors to move out of the risk curve when the risk-free rate is moving 75 basis points a month. I think the good news is that a lot of the heavy lifting in rates is likely done. And so we should start to see a stabilisation in central bank policy, I think followed by some visibility on the depth um, and duration of any global recession. This idea of a reset in how investors consider opportunities is also a very important point and one that has certainly played out here in APAC. I think investors have returned to fundamental financial characteristics to identify investment opportunities, with the key ones, of course, being cash flows, balance sheets and debt levels. I think as alluded to also, this has resulted in very different sectors and companies being in demand from investors. This is not to say that I think companies focused on aggressive growth aren't attractive to investors here in Australia, but it does mean that some of them are being asked to demonstrate sustainable pathways to profitability and positive cash flows, and clearly more so than they would have been asked to do, call it 18 months ago. It will be really interesting to see when we come out of this malaise that we've lived through what the constituency of deals looks like, whether that is across sectors, whether it's across products. But historically in the U.S., as you know, tech usually dominates. We would expect that to continue to happen, maybe not to the same extent that we've had previously. And I think we'll all value having discussions on things other than just revenue multiples, having discussions on real cash flow and real valuation dynamics that are tangible in the near term. That may be the single biggest lesson that the market will have to continue to absorb. 
we have a tremendous backlog both at RBC and across the street um, in technology, in healthcare, and though in sectors that maybe have been less represented in some of the years where tech really just crowded everything out, whether it's industrials or real estate, consumer retail, FIG, and I think that will be tremendously healthy for the market to see that type of breadth. Um, we'll talk about depth of product as well, but depth of um, sectors and the ability for a stock picker, to your point, Duncan, a stock picker to have something to actually choose from other than what flavor of tech that they like. And so that'll be, that'll be healthy for us. Yeah, I think that's spot on, John. I think probably if we go back, what distorted, if you like, asset prices and distorted the focus on hyper growth was zero rates, stroke negative rates, if you want to look in certain places in Europe. And that, whilst at the time was possibly a necessary requirement to stabilize economies in a, in a difficult situation around the pandemic, the outputs of that, as we all probably knew going through it, were that it distorts asset prices, it distorts investment decisions, it probably distorts your own financial personal decisions in some way or shape or form. And ultimately, we're going back to normal. And I think you're right. spot on there, right? Going back to normal. And what does that mean for ECM? It means a breadth of issues from a breadth of types of issuers, from a breadth of industries. And ultimately, I think all three of us will say that's a much more healthy environment than it was with the concentration in hyper-growth businesses. And then there's, there's sort of a, uh, I, I guess, a dynamic of those businesses, regardless of what sector they're in. I think people will be more scrutinous of growth and the assumptions that make, people are making about growth, the duration of that growth, how established are those businesses, all of those things that I think traditionally we would always expect people to make. Maybe I think in the, in the recent past, people have been less focused on that. Uh, and again, I think to your point, John, that is a, that's a healthy thing and a, and a good thing, and we can feel optimistic about that. John, what would be your perspectives on the geopolitics, how they've impacted markets? Oh, a simple question like that. Yeah, Thanks, yeah. Sutton. Um, um, <laughs> I think it's interesting. I'm going to answer that by starting with the politics of geopolitics. The most recent example in the U.S. that we've lived through is the midterm elections. And clearly, leaving anyone's politics aside, it clearly impacts the market. And I think what we've seen more recently is how quickly economics, within one week, within days, in fact, the discussion of the midterm elections was completely gone, and it was all about economics. Again, it was all about the recent jobs and CPI reports. And that is one of those situations, I think, where we're going to have to continue to live through that back and forth, whether politics writ large takes the center stage, whether economics does, whether fundamentals do. That will continue to be a piece of our, piece of our life as ECM people that we have to navigate. It gets to this question that I know the three of us get all of the time, which is, what do we need to see? What do we need to see on behalf of our clients to get to an environment where the market that we all want comes back. And to me, there's no answer, of course, but if there were a simple answer, it's stability. Mm. It doesn't need to be up. It doesn't need to be solved. Geopolitics aren't going to be solved, but we need some modicum of stability in which issuers, investors, and all of the constituents in the marketplace can feel like, hey, I can write this check. I can put some dollars to work. Yeah, this, this is something that we have seen over and again. The equity market leads recovery. And we've seen it later in 2022 when we saw a reduction in very high inflation turn into a bullish signal where investors can say, I'm going to get behind that cover shorts, start to get a little bit long and say stability 
may be coming. The actions that the Federal Reserve and other central banks have taken are taking foot. And, and, and they're taking hold, they're taking control of, the, of that inflation. Those are the signs that the market needs. We continue to hope that those signs uh, are, are consistent in, in their turnaround, uh, but the markets will lead the recovery. And as we've talked about before, when we are recovering, investors want to put money to work. We've had outflows in mutual funds for really most of this year. When you see stability, inflows will ensue. Uh, as a result of that, the opportunity to invest in new issues should be set Well, up. And, and interestingly, the rally that we've had as of late has been dominated by hedge funds. And one could say, is that a bullish signal? Is it a bearish signal? Is it someplace in between? To me, I think the interpretation of that is that the negative bets against the market are starting to unwind. And the optimist in me says that when the mutual funds, the big pools of dollars, decide to come back into the market, that's when you can be set up for a real updraft. You take the negative bets off the table first from the hedge funds who need to cover, and then clear the way for mutual fund dollars to support IPOs, to support follow-ons, convertibles, et cetera. The other thing that I think you both mentioned, which I completely agree with, which is what will 23 look like? What do we need to see to see that stability come back? Mm -hmm. And I think we all know that at the point we start to see that stability, the news won't be perfect. It's just that enough of the bad news is probably behind us. We've seen a great CPI print in the United States, which is great but it's one, right? <laughs> and, and I think we need to see a little bit more. I don't think any of us expect that the data series from here is going to be perfect and uniform. There's going to be some disappointment on the way, but that's okay. I think we just need to get through enough of the bad news. People can see a path for the next 6 to 12 to 18 months that it's clearly going to get through this and we're going to get through some of the difficult things. And then I think the equity markets, you know, some of that stability does return. And for all our clients, that's, that's an opportunity. You didn't mention Europe in terms of geopolitics. And you know, I think it's important that we discuss and what you're seeing there um, closest to it. Even though we voted to leave Brexit, which we'll <laughs> decide on that, and then let's leave the politics aside. But uh, yeah, look, the whole of Europe, I, I think, actually has been remarkable, actually, if you think about what's happened over the last 12 months. You know, we have you know, a, a very disastrous war for all those people involved on the borders of Europe, which is something we haven't seen in a generation, several generations, and is shocking to all of us for all those people involved. And if you think about the response to that, it's been incredibly unified. If anything, it's brought Europe much closer together. The UK has just been through a very difficult period of time running through Brexit, whether you agree with that or not, and I'll discuss with you afterwards what my strong opinions on that were, which I think you know. Um, but, uh, you know, and even that has managed to be smoothed over, and I think it's been very unified. And actually, the stability that you talk about and that you look for, I think, has actually been there in terms of European politics. That well, one my... of the interesting things, Nitin, and this would be uh, Justin's commentary really more than mine, is Asia. The conversation being dominated, at least in the U.S. by the conflict in the Ukraine and the ancillary impact of that around the world. Just this week, again, we start hearing discussion on what, what happens in Asia. First, it starts with the discussion of the semiconductor industry and um, whether the stability or not in Taiwan produces a need for semiconductor manufacturing around the world and how that impacts nearly everything that we do. 
It makes the point that I think we all know, which is that geopolitics, whether it's Asia, whether it's the U.S., whether it's Canada, whether it's in Europe, will continue to be something that we have to interpret that there'll never be a right answer to, but that we'll have to continue to bake into this thirst for stability in the markets so that we can get the equity capital markets back to where we want them. Justin, we've been talking about geopolitics, and that obviously is a global dynamic. Tell us a little bit about what you see in APAC. Well, a key focus point in APAC is really engagement between China and the West in all forms. And no great change from what we talked about in 2021. This includes trade and financial flows, geopolitical developments, the classic COVID responses, and intellectual property developments, you know, amongst a whole host of other things. I think while it's unlikely that many of the deeper issues in APAC are going to be resolved quickly, I think finding a middle ground that includes positive economic independency will certainly help the growth. It will also help with the restoration of the global supply chain, which has been a big issue, particularly in the Australian market in 2022. I think working the other way, we expect to continue to see many countries look to build greater domestic capacity in key industries that are fundamental to their economic and political security. I think one area worth highlighting here in APAC is cybersecurity. Recent large-scale hacking incidents have really underscored the need for ongoing investment to ensure companies have a really resilient data protection technology in place. This could be an exciting source of investment opportunity over the coming years. Yeah, the, the barometer for geopolitical stresses has been oil prices. And whether that's China going into shutdown, i.e. economic growth is stalled because everybody's in their houses, or whether it's uh, Putin's actions, uh, Russia's actions, uh, or whether it's, uh, it's, this, uh, it's the cartel that dictates supply of oil across the world. And one of the things, uh, I mentioned it earlier, but with oil prices going to where they are, it has been impactful on inflation, most certainly. But in terms of the balanced discussion of what our energy needs are going to be on a go-forward basis, the desire to have independence from an energy perspective has come to the highlight, right? It's been highlighted by the magnified by these events. Um, and, and I think that's going to be a really important future element of our markets. It's going to be about energy security. We've seen some really interesting activity in nuclear. We've seen renewed interest in renewables as well and trying to get those up as fast as possible. Would be interested in your perspectives as to what happens post let's say, the post-war in terms of investment in, in alternative energy. Yeah, I mean, I think renewables has been, a, as you know, has been a big part of what we do day-to-day -day in Europe. It's been you know, certainly something from an RBC perspective as well. We've been very involved with in Europe in terms of raising capital, both in the fixed income markets, but you know, in our world too, in the ECM markets. Um, I think you know, there's been ebbs and flows, but the overall trend of direction is that there's been an increasing interest from investors. I think the Ukraine situation and the spike in gas prices, the spike in oil prices has had some short-term impact, if you like, on necessity. And it becomes a strategic necessity as opposed to an investment necessity in the short term. But I, I, you know, again, the long-term and the medium-term trends, I think in Europe, people are going to continue to look to build out uh, renewable energy and people will continue to look to invest in those industries and I think I the longer term if you think uh, the, if there's a positive to come out of the Ukraine situation it has highlighted the need for energy security and how it is not a great thing to be reliable on one particular energy source for your energy it's only accelerated the need to have greater depth and breadth in terms of your energy sources and renewables can do that. 
Yeah, I would just add that it's interesting when you look at the data of issuance in our markets, the fact that energy has represented over the last five years or so, some five to 10% at most of equity capital markets activity doesn't seem to be in fitting with what we're talking about, how much energy, oil in particular, drives our marketplaces. I continue to think that whether it's under the heading of renewables, whether it is traditional energy and energy independence, that energy power and all of the ancillary fields that come from that will take a bigger and bigger part of the equity capital markets. Opens up a whole discussion, of course, on ESG, and there has certainly been an ebb and flow of ESG in 22 that was probably, in hindsight, quite expected, as that market in some ways is still very nascent. And um, But energy will dominate. The headlines right goes hand in glove with politics, of course, and is just so crucial to everything that we do. Yeah, I think we're going to see renewed investment at all levels. I mean, there's a lot of energy technology that is not ready for primetime public markets as yet. And I think all public investors are saying, yes, we want to be supportive of renewables, but there aren't enough renewables as yet. We want to be supportive of extractive technologies for for carbon dioxide, um, carbon capture and the like, but we don't have enough developed projects that are public market ready. This is venture stuff. We need funding there, but we're very interested in seeing it as well. So again, I, I think maybe I harp on this too much, but that balanced discussion about what constitutes the future of energy is back as expected because the narrative prior to that uh, was uncomfortable for many. People didn't get it. And I, and I think the uh, a core point that I see in public markets on, on, on ESG is if we're going to say we're doing something, well, we better do it because we have reputational and legal liability, much like what we say we're going to hit our numbers. It's similar to what we discussed before. I think as challenging as 2022 has been, it really has offered some tremendous lessons for market participants on some really complex issues that investors are, are getting their heads around. I think this is especially true for the broader energy transition, where we've really seen a unique set of events culminated in an energy crisis that reminded us of the importance of energy security. In APAC, we've seen investors and companies who identify the potential for supply-side shortages as the world decarbonises, rewarded with some really strong counter-cyclical outperformance. I think for reference, the ASX energy sector is up, call it 40% year-to-date before dividends versus the market that is down around 5%. I think going forward, we think there is now a broader number of companies and sectors that investors are looking to support through this energy transition process. This is ultimately a, you know, it's a good thing and should result in more creative and effective projects for investors to do work on. Yeah, the ESG landscape, I think, is, as I mentioned, going through a little bit of its early growing pains to end up in a better place, which is exactly what you said. People have to, companies have to, investors have to hold themselves accountable for what they're counting as ESG and that they're really delivering on what they say. I believe that we will end up in a better place for whether we call it 22's reckoning in ESG dollars from the investor standpoint or uh, from issuers' reality that they have to do what they said they're going to do puts us in a better place going forward. Um, interestingly, you made the point about many of the most promising technologies not being ready for prime time. It's, a, it's an interesting dynamic between that observation and the overall 
that the markets want cash flow. They want predictability, they want stability. Right now, of course, coming out of a downturn that we had, those two things are a little bit at odds. Most evident usually in technology, but in energy transition, in renewables, in many of the the projects that we all hope as human beings will become important projects uh, for energy security in the world. We're going to have to have a reckoning as to where venture capital fills in those holes, where private equity fills in those holes. Of course, government has to play a role in many of the most long-term funding needs for society at large, and it'll be an interesting dynamic. But that will, in my opinion, become a bigger and bigger backdrop of our core equity capital markets, IPOs, follow-ons, convertibles, etc. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.